My name is Josh. I think I said this earlier. I'm, I'm one of your leaders. I'm one of your pastors. A uh, huge privilege today. We are going to be in the book of Esther. Uh, we believe in the Bible. We believe that these are the actual words of God. Uh, we believe that God spoke these words uh, through the lives of, of what I would consider pretty ordinary men. I mean, if you look at who uh, the lives of these people were, they're very ordinary through the actions of men and women, very much like you and I. And we see, uh, we see God doing huge, kind of big, miraculous, extraordinary things. But then we also see God doing kind of very uh, behind-the-scenes things through just very normal men and women. So every single week that we gather as a church, we are preaching through the Bible. We open it up because we believe that this really is uh, the instructions that God has given us on how to best live. And if we are to live the best life possible, it's a life following after God's Word, which is why we will always prioritize that as we gather. So that's, uh, that's what we're doing today. We're going to be uh, in the book of Esther. If you're wondering why I have less hair, why I'm not 75, and why I'm not preaching through legalism and grace through Galatians, Rich will be back next week. That's okay. Um, I'm going to ask that you stand with me if you're able. Uh, we're going to honor the Word of God as we read it. If you're not able, that's okay. Uh, you can stay seated. But if you're able, stand with me. I'm going to read the entirety of chapter 6 in the book of Esther. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman, who had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had just prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to him, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a, cra a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to the one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai, led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. <laughs> then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Jeresh and all his friends and everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Jeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were yet 
talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther has prepared. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's keep standing and I'll pray. Father God, we finally see some change in this story. Uh, After about a year of preaching through this, for the first time, we see a reversal here. For the very first time, God, we have some hope in this story. And Lord, my prayer is that if there are anyone in this room today who's finding life a bit hopeless, that this story would bring hope to them. That this story, a story of a, of a godless king and a godless nation in a godless time where we don't see your voice, where we don't see you actively moving like we do in much of the Old Testament, yet through it all, God, we see you clearly are doing something. So Lord, I pray that we would find hope in that, that we would be a people who trust that you are God, that you are who you say you are, and you are doing great things. We love you. We thank you for your word. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Go ahead. Take a seat. So from the very first time that we started this, like I said, it was about a year ago, actually. I think it was the first week of September. Uh, We're about uh, one week a month, so uh, we're somewhere uh, in a year into it. Uh, For the very first time, I I asked the question, how many of you have seen God? I've tried to reiterate this every time I'm up here, and, and I'm trying to like pull this theme throughout the entirety of this book. And today, that theme really culminates uh, in what, what is called the peripety, the, the climax, the high point of the turning point where things begin to change in this book. So I asked, how many of you have seen God? I asked, how many of us have experienced God? And, and I also said that For a lot of us, we experience God very differently than most people in the Bible, right? And that can cause attention, it can cause doubt, it can cause um, full-on disbelief, right? Because here we are, we're saying the Bible is God's Word, we're saying it's our primary source in which our faith comes from. Yet when we open up the Bible, I mean, if we're to be honest, most people's experience in the Bible is very different than your experience in life, isn't it? It is. I mean, whether you're talking about Adam or Noah or Abraham or Samuel, the way that they experienced God was very different than the way that you and I experienced God. Right? I've, I've said this before. I said uh, oftentimes in the Bible, God would audibly speak to people in the Old Testament, right? Where he would call out, Samuel, Samuel. And, you know, Samuel wakes up. Okay, God, tell me what you're going to do. And he'd say, you know, I'm going to do something that uh, would make the ears tingle of everyone who heard this. Um, has anyone had that experience? There's a lot of people in this room. I don't see anyone boldly raise your hand. And I, I believe you would boldly raise your hand in this moment if that happened. I, I haven't. Um, I hear my name being shouted all the time when I'm in my bed. But it's always from a four-year-old upstairs saying, like, I can't sleep. The, it's too dark or I need water. But I've never heard God say, Joshua, I'm going to do something great in Corvallis. And so if, if my faith is driven by something that I read primarily, and what I read is stories of people who experience God in an extraordinary way, where does that put me when I don't regularly experience God on an extraordinary way? Where, where does that put me? Right? For a lot of people, that puts you in a season of doubt. For a lot of people, that puts you in just straight-up unbelief. All right, if you're here, maybe your, your parents brought you here, maybe your spouse brought you here, and you've just lived long enough to realize, you know what, 
those stories that I hear about in the Bible are so inconsistent with my life that I cannot believe that those were true. Right? That, that is true of a number of us in here. I know that to be the case. Right? And then for the, some of us who accepted it for a while, we've said, okay, God, uh, we had a season. Maybe you went to summer camp. Maybe you went to, you know, young life camp and God seemed to be doing some miraculous things. And, and the speaker was speaking and my fingers were tingling and people were crying and God was moving in great ways. But then years go by and I maybe didn't experience God in this huge, fantastical way. And, and then doubt starts to creep in, doesn't it? And then as you're going, things become a lot more laborious, right? Not so enjoyable. Showing up to church on a Sunday morning, opening up the word, pursuing Christ with your spouse. These things, if you're not experiencing God in the way that you had hoped you would, these can become somewhat of a kind of moral sticker chart that you're just for some reason feel like you have to check off boxes. So where is God? Right? If if it is true that God doesn't engage with you and I in the exact same way as he engaged with a lot of people in the Old Testament and through the New Testament with Jesus himself personally being there, how am I supposed to believe that he works in my life? Right on 3560 Southwest Western, is God doing something in the life and Every day of life at the office, life with kids, life with parents, life with your spouse. Is God doing something in your life? This is why I think a right understanding of the Bible is so important. We need to understand the Bible in its entirety, which is absolutely why I believe God gives us stories like the story of Esther, where God's name is not mentioned. I keep saying this. There is no prophets There's no active voice of God. There's literally not a mention of the word prayer in the book of Esther. There's no apostles. There's no parting of the Red Sea. There's no fire being brought down. It seems to be a pagan story on many levels. But I'll also say this. In a story where God's name is not overtly seen, to deny God's activity I believe would take far more faith than to believe that he was doing something. Let me say that one more time and clear that. I believe it would take far more faith to believe that God was not working in the story of Esther than to believe that he was. So our question today is, what was he doing? How do we know this? What was going on? And is this story any better than any just simple moral fable that we read about in sophomore year humanities class. So what is God doing? What is God doing throughout the story of Esther? Today, like I said, we're at the climax. We finally hit it. We finally hit the point when things begin to change. Finally, we've been waiting and waiting and waiting for this point, right? Think about every story to ever be written. Uh, Think back to freshman year English. Every story plot is always the same, isn't it? Every single story, every book you've ever read that you've enjoyed, every story that you've watched that you've enjoyed is always the same plot, right? You're introduced in the beginning to the main characters. Here's the setting. Here's the main characters. And then the action begins, right? There's some sort of crisis. You know, the guy's trying to win the girl. There's aliens that are going to take over the universe. You know, all these these things are going to happen. Uh, and then there, there's more crises like, oh, my goodness, uh, the girl gets amnesia. And, and all of a sudden it's a zombie apocalypse. And what are we going to do? And there's this rising action. 
right? Think about your favorite movie. Think about your favorite book that you've read that's a novel. It's always the same thing. And then at some point, something changes, right? At some point, Will Smith takes out the aliens and everything's okay. And Katniss finally wins over the people. I forget the, who's the main people in there? Katniss and the Capitol, right? The Capitol. Finally, we overthrow the Capitol. And then we float into the very end and its conclusion and it's happily ever after, right? The girl remembers, oh my goodness, I did love you. I don't have amnesia anymore. And, and whom we're okay, right? Every single story to ever be told. So here we are. This is Esther. We were introduced to the beginning. We were introduced to the main characters. Here's Xerxes. Here's opulence. Here's perversion. Here's fourth century, uh, powerful, powerful king, huge kingdom, massive control. We're, we're told about his parties. We're told about his wives. We're told about uh, just life in Persia. We're introduced to the other main characters. The other main characters, uh, who was the main Jew? The man was... Mordecai, right? And his hated enemy, the Agagite's name was Haman. And the lovely, innocent, our favorite young woman of the capital is Esther, right? These are our main characters. And the plot thickens and the story rises. And from the beginning, the king, uh, he gets rid of his wife because she won't parade around in front of all his drunken military friends. And so there's this quest to find a new wife. And he, he does a really perverse quest to find a wife. And he finds one. It's Esther. Um, things are okay. But then we have the tension between the Agagites and the Jews, between Mordecai and between Haman. Right? It, it becomes a personal thing where Mordecai will not bow down to Haman. And Haman does not like that. He's personally offended. And so he takes his offense to the king and he says, you know what? We need to eliminate these people off the face of the earth. We need to kill all of the Jews forever. And so an edict is stamped. We're going to kill the, all of the Jews forever. Wow, this seems a little intense. And then it continues. Not only are we going to kill all the Jews forever, but obviously the Jews are going to be thrown into a panic. And so Mordecai goes to Esther and he asks Esther, hey, could you go in front of the king and try to get this reversed? And she says, no way. I'd lose my life if I did that. And he says, you know, I'm going to kill you if you don't or you'll be killed some other way. So let's figure this out. So she says, OK, let's do it. So she goes, uh, she goes, she makes a plan. She has two parties. Well, the first party is in front of the king and Haman, the vice president. So the two of them are there. It's her and them. Everything is good. Haman walks home from the party. All is well. I'm so awesome. The king loves me. The king's wife loves me. I'm the greatest guy in the world. He wakes up the next day nice and early. He's trotting into town on his high horse. Everything's good. And oh, my goodness, there's that Mordecai. I hate that guy. Oh, I can't think about anything as long as there's one person I don't like. The rest of my life is amazing, but I hate this one person. So I'm going to make it my personal vendetta to kill this man. So what are we going to do? Let's erect a 75-foot tower, a huge pole in the middle of the city. I'm going to either hang him on it or impale him on it or do something horribly gruesome so that everyone will know, do not mess with me. I'm powerful. I'm important. My name is Haman. Don't mess with me. So he wakes up early the next day. When he wakes up, he goes to the king. Okay, I got this plan. I want to kill this guy. I hate him. But it's before that point that our story begins today. Up to this point, it's been a, a terrible story. It's been a, a really horrible story. There's been nothing good that's happened. I mean, honestly, this is, uh, this is kind of an NC-17 story. There's a lot of violence, um, there's a lot of sex, there's a lot of perversion, 
There's a lot of hatred, a lot of anger. There's really nothing redemptive about this story at all whatsoever, Uh, which is why I think it's great that God put it in the Bible, because this is real life for a lot of people. Uh, So we need to be honest and and, and not pretend that this isn't reality. So this is a terrible, awful story, a terrible king, um, a terrible time period, a, a terrible vendetta, a terrible, terrible story. But then something changes. And we're expecting God to do something big here, right? Like if, if this is in the Bible, aren't we expecting God to, to send fire down right now? I mean, if this is God's covenant people, if God has made this huge promise that I'm going to build you into nations, isn't he going to do something big? Right? Wouldn't we expect that? So you ready for it? You ready for the, the big reveal? Okay, here we go. Chapter 6, verse 1. This is the huge reveal. On that night, the king could not sleep. Okay, you ready? I'm going to read it one more time. It's, it's, this is the height of this entire book. You ready? God's going to do something incredible here. It's going to do something extraordinary, something amazing. Okay, I don't want to, I don't want to read it too quickly. You might miss it. Chapter 6, verse 1. On that night, the king could not sleep. Okay, where's the fire? Right, where is God like pulling up this 75 foot pole, like making it levitate in front of the entire city and then boom, just instantly shattering it into splinters? Is this entire story really going to hinge on one person's inability to sleep? Is the history of God's people going to be predicated on one man's bad dinner? I don't think so. So here's the king. He can't sleep. Right? You ever have those nights? Unfortunately, they happen way too often for me. I wish they didn't. But we don't know why the king couldn't sleep. Who knows? Maybe he's got an 18-year-old son who's not doing much with his life, and he's thinking, man, I wish my kid would have some ambition. Right? Who knows? Maybe his parents are getting old. He's thinking, okay, which retirement home do I put them in? Oh, there's just a lot of stress. I mean, with as many wives as he probably had, I... Can't imagine the stress level there. Um, And the kids. I mean, he's got to have like 8 million kids. I mean, with all these pageants, he's got to just be pumping kids out. I don't know why he couldn't sleep. The text doesn't tell us why. But it says he couldn't sleep. So what does he do? When he can't sleep, he calls one of his officials. He says, I want you to read something to me. And just pick something. Well, it just so happens that he picked a story that we read about in chapter 2, right? Remember the story in chapter 2, at the end of chapter 2, where Mordecai, he's, remember, he's like your average office worker. He's in the cubicle. He's just plugging away everyday life, and he hears an assassination plot. He hears this plot, and he tells it to whoever, and whoever brings it to the king, and the assassination plot is unfolded. Uh, But no reward is given to Mordecai, which is unusual in this time and uh, day if an assassination plot was discovered, typically there would be some sort of great reward, maybe a, a higher seat in the government, perhaps uh, being a governor of sorts. Um, but nothing was given to Mordecai. But all of a sudden here, uh, in the middle of the night, he can't sleep, very early in the morning, uh, we bring up this, uh, this account. Now, if you uh, kind of pay attention carefully to the story, you know that this isn't current news. Right? This isn't the weekly news blog. This isn't, hey, what's going on this week? This is something that happened upwards of five years before. Right, so if you look in chapter 2, verse 16, you hear that uh, 
that that event, the assassination plot, was in the seventh year of the reign of the king. But then this event was happening in the twelfth year. You read that in chapter 3, verse 6. So it just so happens to pick up, I don't know, 16, 17, 18, 19, 25 volumes back. Just so happens to open up the scroll. Just so happens to be the time, the week, the day when Mordecai discovered an assassination plot. He's trying to figure out, okay, what do I do now? How do I reward him? Uh, And he's wondering who's around, who can give me advice on this? And all of a sudden, who shows up? Surprise! Here's Haman. Remember, Haman's on his way to tell the king, hey, I got this great plan. I hate this guy. I want to just take care of him. Can we just kind of blot him out? Um, And here's Haman. He's in the courtyard. The king brings him in. And he asks him a question. What should be done to the man to whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, hmm, who would the king like to, who, who would the king delight to honor more than me? Um, now, I could easily go into an extra sermon here about Haman. I, I did that last time, remember his solitary doors, if you remember that. Um, but I, I do want to make a point or two about Haman. Here's Haman, he's coming in, the king asks him something, and his first thought is what? Is it about other people? No, it's about himself. Right? He's thinking this. He doesn't even say it out loud. He's thinking in his mind, whom would the king like to honor more than me? See, I really think that one of the biggest fights that we will ever face in life is pride and arrogance, and it always begins in our minds. Always. It's certainly my biggest struggle. Right? And I believe it's probably one of the biggest struggles of every one of us in here. And this manifests itself in the way that we think. Right? Typically, when we hear news, what's our first thought? How does it affect me? Right. If someone gets a promotion, you're always comparing yourself. Well, could I have done a better job? Do I do better than them? Do I deserve this? Right. We think about our political views. Everyone should have the same political views as me because I'm the only one who gets it all right. Right. And this narcissism is only exacerbated when it's behind a screen. Amen. Right. So on our computer, it's so easy. I'm right all the time. Listen to everything that I believe you should believe just like me. And we live in a culture that eats and breathes pride and it starts in our minds. And here's how, it fleshes, here's how it fleshes itself out. I should be king. Right? And this is what Haman said. I should be king. You know what? I should wear the king's clothes. I should ride the king's horse. There should be a parade for me. Right? There, someone should be leading this parade and saying, Hail to the mighty, enter your name. So that everyone in Corvallis will know how great you are. Right? That's what Haman was doing. Um, Xerxes, this is what we should do to the man whom you would like to honor. We should make a parade for them. But it's only going to be about one person. And they should wear your clothes and they should be you. Hey, throw, the, throw your crown on there. Hey, throw your wife on the back too. Why not? Let's, let's, let, me, let me just be you. Pride begins in the mind. And it manifests itself in ugly, ugly ways. And here's the problem. Haman was trying to be the wrong king. Right? He wanted to be Xerxes. Xerxes was a terrible king. And you and I want to be other terrible kings too, don't we? Right? If, if we are to be like the king, King Jesus, Jesus says, what about pride? I mean, he talks about pride so often. He says, if you want to be like me, let go. Take up your cross, follow me. It's not about you anymore. This is a very, very different mantra than how Haman 
went about pursuing things. And then the reversal begins, right? Here's the reversal. It starts in verse 10. Hurry, take the robes, take the horse, and do so to Mordecai the Jew. Now, this is just funny, right? Like, perhaps this is the funniest part of all of the Old Testament, right? Here comes this guy. He's ready to have someone killed. And I, just, I wish I could be there. I wish I could just watch this in real life. Like, the parade, I, I don't know what he was doing. I, I can't even try to copy it, but... Carrying some guy, you know, leading some guy through the city, trying to get people to cheer for this guy that you hate, who's on the horse doing what you wish you could do. It's just really funny. And I have to imagine God was laughing also. Um, so what was God doing here? Right through this entire story, what, what is God doing? I mean, is it, is it really left up to chance here? Is God leaving this up to chance? But I want, I want you to think for a minute, go, go back to, uh, if you have a child, think about the first time that you held your child. All right, just, just go there in your mind, close your eyes, just think about, okay, when you held your baby, maybe it's your first child, maybe you have other memories of your second and third child, um, if you're Derek, your fifth, sixth, seventh child, um, <laughs> think about what, it, what you were thinking when you're holding your child. But I got very fond memories, you know, thinking things like, Man, I'm going to do everything in my power to protect you. There is not a level of unconditional love that I could have ever known before this moment right here. Right? Think through that. What was it like to carry your child for the first time, to hold them for the first time? And then think through, okay, when God called to himself a people group, it was very much like that moment. Right? It started with one man. It started with Abraham. You go all the way back to Genesis 12. Well, I guess it kind of started with Adam. But when he particularly called himself a people group out of peoples, it started with Abraham in Genesis 12. And, and he said something very similar to, to what I think a lot of us would say, holding our child for the first time. He says this, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing and especially as a father, this resonates with me. He says, I will bless those who bless you, and to him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in all the families of the earth will be blessed. All right, so here's God taking care of Abraham, and he's saying, I'm going to be your father. I'm going to take care of you. And then he later affirms that covenant again and again. He affirms it to Isaac. He affirms it to Jacob. The same covenant. And then there is... Uh, Joseph, he, he doesn't audibly affirm that to Joseph, but we know that that covenant continued. There was a time period of 400 years after Joseph where the people were in slavery. And I have to imagine at that point people were going, okay, there was a promise somewhere a long time ago. What's going on? Where is that? Where is that promise? And then it continues on when Moses brings the people out, right? He's, he's moving for three months. The Red Sea is parted. There are two to three million people in front of Sinai. And God makes the promise again. He gives five things to his covenant promise. He says this. He says, essentially, I'm going to take care of you. I got you. I'm your dad. And this is what is going to happen. He says in Exodus 19, 5 and 6, he says, you're going to be a prized possession, a royal priest a holy nation. Uh, I quoted this last week at the beach camp out. He says, I'm going to be merciful. I'm going to be gracious. I'm going to be forgiving. But then he says this in Exodus 23, 22. 
If you carefully obey my voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversary. So what is God doing to his nation here? If God called to himself a people group, do you think he's really going to leave it up to a, a one guy not being able to sleep in the middle of the night? Do you honestly believe that? Do you believe that it just so happens to be that the book that was read was 27 volumes ago, halfway through the scroll, scroll, fourth paragraph down, where the great reversal would begin? Do you really believe that? Do you believe that as we have seen the nation of Israel still alive today after I don't know how many attempts to get rid of them, do you believe that God really is leaving that up to chance? I I would have to say it would take far more faith to believe that than it would be to believe that God was actively moving when he woke up Xerxes in the middle of the night. In fact, the Greek translation of the Old Testament writes that in, and God took sleep from him. I have to believe that. I have to also skip a bunch of my notes because we're really late here. <laughs> I'll say this in closing. I'm trying to figure out how to close quickly here in a way that makes sense. Um, God is moving and working in ways that primarily are unseen in our city and our time, right? I mean, there, there are plenty of times that you can point to exactly God's doing this. And those are great moments. But there are huge times when God is moving and working in great ways behind the scenes. And why and who does he work for? I want to just go to verse 12 and 13 at the end here. Uh, I'll, I'll go right to verse 13. Verse 13, we see even Haman's family begins to realize that God's behind what's happening here. When Mordecai, or when Haman goes back home, he goes to his wife. His wife says this, starting in verse 13. And Haman told his wife, Jerish, and all his friends, everything that had happened to him, Then his wise men and his wife, Jairus, said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Saying if God is with him, if God is the one who is behind this, you're not going to be able to defeat the Jewish people. It's an identity piece here. Right? This is is an identification. Uh, Even Jairus, the wife, says, Hey, if... God is with these people. We're not going to win. Identity here. This piece where we belong to a father is not predicated on anything Mordecai did. In fact, Mordecai in, in the story is not a great man. We know nothing great that Mordecai did. His moral scale is not like, okay, he's tipping. He's 8.5. He hasn't done anything uh, grievous or horrible. There, there's no atrocities in his life. So God's going to love him. No. The Bible tells us if you confess and believe, then you are saved. You are his son. It's an identity piece. And once you are in, once you have that piece of identity, God says, I'm going to be your father. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to be a father in such a way that I'm going to wake people up and, sleep and, ha- and let them have sleepless nights. I'm going to work in such a way that Haman will just so happen to be there. I'm going to work in such a way that the book that's being read, that's going to drive the decision to change the course of history, I'm going to be behind it. I have to believe that God continues to work like this. I'll end and I'll say this. For the seeker, the Bible gives us tons of promises. One promise I just mentioned briefly comes from Romans 10. It says, if you confess with your mouth, he is faithful and just, and he will save. For with a heart one believes and one is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. 
God will be your father if you confess with your mouth. For the skeptic, I would say perhaps one place to start today would be looking at the idea of story. Right? Perhaps the fact that every story from the beginning of time that we celebrate uh, always follows the same pattern. Perhaps that was a gift from God that follows the story of history where God creates where there is action and drama when we sin, when the action continues, when God says he would send someone into the world, and where the climax of history is in Jesus Christ, and now we are cruising into the final history where God will bring everything together. Perhaps story is brought together. Think that one through for the skeptic. And for the Christian, I will land on this. Having a right understanding of who God is and how he works is crucial for the longevity of your faith because there will be times and seasons when storms will come. And if you don't realize that God very often works behind the scenes and not in fantastical ways, you will doubt you will walk away. And so having a firm foundation that God works in all things for all people who love him and who are called according to his purpose, you've got to hold on to that truth. I'm going to say yes and amen. I'm going to pray. And holy moly, we are late. That's okay. Jesus, we love you. Um, God, I thank you that you work all things for the good of all people who love you. God, I thank you that we have a story of Esther. And in this story, Lord, you are working mightily. I think we can so obviously see that. I think we can see that um, in my life, even though I don't see these extraordinary miracles, I can see your hand. I can see what you're doing, some seasons more than others, but Lord, I pray that I would hold on to the truth that you love me like the way that I love my child when I hold them, but far better because you are a better dad than I am. I love you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.